Hello, Career Cohort. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Emily Wong, founder of Words of Distinction. We talk about tools for achieving career success, inspirational stories about overcoming career and life challenges, and how we can recalibrate our perspective to better enjoy the journey forward. I'm really excited about this episode because my interview is with my son, Zach Wong, and he's sharing some real great nuggets from his experience, soup to nuts, everything from doing his research to preparation to interviewing, and then his experiences in internships. And I really encourage you to listen through this because he has so many great ideas for sharing. And I have to say, I really also appreciate the fact that he shared the mistakes he made so that you won't have to make them. So without further ado, here we go. Hey, Zach. Hi, mom. How's it going? Going well. So let's dive in right now. I kind of want to follow your internship trajectory because I see this as kind of a three-part conversation. One is what you learn from your experience as you are applying for internships, then as an intern, and then any thoughts on what you would like to see moving forward as far as engagement with interns, uh, what you would suggest for companies. Does that sound like a good idea? Definitely. All right. So the first thing I want to ask you is, is there anything that you learned you know, you go in before your internships, so you, you did have a high school internship, but before your college internships, as you were applying, was there anything that you had a preconceived idea about and then you found, you learned something from the experience that you hadn't expected? I think preconceived ideas. Uh, I'm not sure if I had a lot of preconceived ideas, but I do know that, and I think this is a pretty common thing. I definitely had a fear of failure and a fear of rejection. I remember my first and second years, especially kind of adopting a mentality of, well, it's really unlikely that I'm going to get something anyway. So why even go through the process of applying? Why talk to recruiters? Why go out to these career fairs? Why spend all this time and effort to ultimately end in rejection? Uh, For context, I'm a mechanical engineer, or I was a mechanical engineering student at UCLA. It's while it does happen, it is pretty rare especially for first years, but after even after their second year, to get good, high-quality internships. And I very much thought, okay, well, that kind of allows me to avoid a lot of these preparation steps. So you're going in with a, a preconceived idea that you didn't think you were going to get a job, so you weren't preparing? Is that what you're saying? Y- yeah, I was just kind of neglecting doing I, I didn't really send out that many applications my I didn't send out any applications after my first year of college or for for an internship after my first year of college and I sent out very few my second year and I didn't do I wasn't trying to make connections or going out to as were really any career fairs during that time period either I was talking to my friends a little bit talking to some older people but I wasn't even thinking about the steps that I would need to take uh, going forward and I think that was if, if I had made any mistakes, or have any preconceived notions. I think that was probably the biggest thing. All I knew was that it was really unlikely. I would probably get one after my third year, but it was really unlikely my first and second year. So why even try at this point? I see. Okay, that that's that makes sense. So what is your recommendation to somebody who's listening to this and is thinking about internships? When should they start preparing? I think it starts right when you get to college. Um, and I think preparation looks different as you as you gain experience, obviously you're going to come in most freshmen in college, especially in engineering, just don't have the skills or the under like awareness of the field that they're going into to be able to contribute to most companies. Um, There are obviously exceptions to this. There are, there are students that are technically up to date or, or there are people who have other sorts of connections that can get them. But the reality does exist that you're just going to be at a skill deficit compared to everybody else you're competing to and also what the company needs, right? It's ultimately at the whim of the company. Companies are going to need a specific skill level. That being said, I think the question becomes, and it's a really important question of how can I then improve my skills? What are the secondary or tertiary options I can do in the meantime if the primary option is eventually getting a uh, primary want or goal is 
to eventually get an internship and then convert that into a full-time offer or make yourself more competitive for full-time offers. The first thing is, okay, what are the intervening steps? Even if they're really small steps, even if they seem maybe not the most important or a little bit trivial or meaningless at the time, what can I be doing to affect change later down the line? I think a couple of these things are looking for research opportunities, going to professor's office hours. I, I've spoken to a lot of friends you know, in their fourth year of college or, or graduated who don't have any meaningful relationships with any professors. Finding people early on that can just provide a little bit of mentorship, a little bit of shaping of what the engineering space, obviously in my case, but I'm sure this extends to other disciplines as well, just shaping what that industry looks like. What are your options moving forward? Should you consider grad school? All of these things, I think, are going to make you a lot more confident and a lot more decisive when you get to the point of your, a company's asking you, hey, what are you interested? What, How are you bringing value to our industry? What are your specific skills or niche abilities? And also when you have to ask for things like letters of recommendation. I know more recently, and I'm sure we'll get into this, I had to quickly get together a couple of letters of recommendation. And because I had spent a lot of time in my second year, in my third year, developing strong relationships with professors, getting those recommendations was a lot more, it was a lot less stressful and a lot less up in the air of if I could get those than maybe it might've been for some other people. How many letters of recommendations did did you need? What, what were the companies looking for? So for the program that I went through, but there's been other times where I've needed letters of recommendation. Well, I think they want a demonstration. So I, I needed three. I needed two professors and then one like kind of character recommendation um, who also it turned out to be a professor as well. But they're looking for technical competency, obviously. I think specificity is important as well. And the reason why specificity is important is because I think that it also demonstrates technical competency. It's very easy to say you did something abstractly in a program um, or you just demonstrated some broad skills. It's very difficult to, if you don't have that technical competency, competency to detail exactly what you did, the impact that you made. It also shows an awareness of you and of the professor and the PI that you were contributing something directly and that you could put... It was easy to point out what you had done. And I think that alone will demonstrate why you are an important asset. I think the second thing, obviously, is like character. Even in a technical letter of recommendation, it's still all about, does that person show up enthusiastic? Do they work hard? Do they take initiative? Are they, will are they willing to ask questions? Are they willing to take it upon themselves to learn things beyond maybe their exact scope and begin pushing the boundaries for themselves without having to be you know, for lack of a better term, handheld. Well, obviously it's okay to ask questions. You also want to be able to ask a question, get an answer, and then run with that answer for a little bit before you have to come back and ask your next question. Just asking like the next question all the time without doing any critical thinking skills for yourself is obviously going to be a detriment to a company or a professor in a lab, but that also can shine through in letters of recommendation. I know my letters, technical letters of recommendation were obviously about what I had accomplished, but also the way in which I went about accomplishing it, I think was just as important. Oh yeah, for sure. The other, you know, you talked about like these small achievements or small experiences. And you you talked to me about that before where you you've talked to younger friends who were looking at internships and said, you know, I don't think I'm qualified. And I know you had given some advice that even if it's small, again, you mentioned this too, in this conversation, it, these things accumulate, they add up to something bigger. And I think one thing you were talking to your brother about the other day is something that I talked to clients about, and that is even if you are not in a leadership role, there's always an opportunity to lead or demonstrate that leadership and talk about that leadership, whether it's in your organizations or yeah. in your class projects. Yeah, and I, I think that touches on something that I kind of left out, which is when you're in college or even as an engineer, the most one of the most technical disciplines when it comes to interviewing and whatnot, having it, having to go through technical interviews taking positions in clubs or trying to find leadership opportunities that are not specific technical also counts as doing that early work. The earlier you can start doing that, I know just on a personal level, it's made me more confident, it's made me more aware, more empathetic, more understanding of, of others and, and how to work with teams outside of my career. But obviously, it's it provides those sort of humanizing moments that you can talk about in an interview and say, hey, mm -hmm. maybe I don't have this specific technical skill that you need, 
But I was able to overcome these sets of problems. I was able to work with people in this way. I was able to bring humility or problem solve or um, demonstrate conflict resolution between two other people or, or, or two groups. All of these sorts of things indicate that this is a person I would want to work with. More importantly, this is a person that it's easier to train. I know I've talked to a lot of my bosses and a lot of people I look up to almost universally People agree, I can teach you technical skills. I can bring you at least up to just general technical competence in almost everything. It's really hard to teach people how to speak up in a meeting or ask a question or form an opinion and then defend that opinion in front of maybe a superior um, mm -hmm. to put themselves out there in otherwise uncomfortable situations. That is very, very hard to teach, I think. Um, and definitely in my own personal experience, but from from talking with people who are who are far above me and, and have to have to train a lot of people. Um I, I think that's really the difference. And and being able to to show that and being confident in talking about it. One thing I, I do tell uh like my younger friends in college is when you're going through a behavioral interview, you kind of know the questions they ask. What are your strengths? What is your weaknesses? Demonstrate a time when you had to overcome a problem. When were you a follower? When were you a leader? I tell them like even if you're not going to use these stories always have a story that you can easily tell to the recruiter or to the interviewer that demonstrates this specifically and think about it ahead of time. Hey, I want to show that I'm, I lead in this way, that I'm good at maybe talking in big groups or, or being able to cut through the bureaucratic, like the bureaucracy in you know, whatever club or organization or company that I'm going into. Be able to tell a specific story that tells that narrative and have Tens, 10 of those stories, one for each of the main questions that you're going to be asked. And then you can obviously weave those in and, and modify them in real time. But you only develop those stories by doing these small secondary and tertiary things that maybe people don't think about as first years and second years because it's just focused on, okay, I just need to pass my technical interview. Right, exactly. I, I think that people give short shrift to those soft skills. Exactly. Um, and and I, do, I do advise clients not to just list their soft skills. Like, so don't just say I'm good at communications. There has to be context there. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, obviously just like having something on your resume, but being able to pull something out from that thing and, and being able to say, Hey, I've got this on my resume. Here's a story about it. Um, the other right. thing, like on the flip side is always be able to tell a story about each one of those things on your resume. You should be able to really know. And I actually know this because I got caught with my pants down a little bit in one of my, I, I didn't think it was going to be a more technical interview, but he started pushing me on some of these technical projects that I had on my resume. Uh, I thought it was going to be like a behavioral kind of introduction thing, sort of, sort of deal. And he started pushing me on these technical things. And I realized I hadn't reviewed some of these technical projects as recently as I should have and wasn't as up to date. I was able to navigate it and kind of cover for myself, of course, but being able to know, hey, this was my, being able to explicate those projects at a deep level, at a personal level, and obviously at a high technical level, um, I think are all really important things. So again, cr crafting your stories, having these stories kind of on deck and in your roster, ready to go when these obvious questions are going to come is a really great way. And again, it all goes back to mm -hmm. starting early, starting to develop these sorts of stories early. Yeah. I know you're big on journaling, Zach. Do you also do that for your job? Like, like practice writing it down, writing these stories down and then... I don't think I... I'm not explicitly doing that with my job, obviously the work I've been doing in the past couple of years sometimes makes it hard to, to take information out of the workplace. I, I work in defense. Um, right, and right. while I'm not working, you know, classified stuff all the time, I, I am working with proprietary things and, and I can't, yeah, basically it makes it hard for me to like take this information and write it down in a book. Right, right, right. How about when you were doing, uh, like working in the lab and things like that at UCLA, did you... I think I would write about some of this stuff, but it would be more like I would just be more aware of this principle, this guiding principle that I'm trying to find mm -hmm. stories and, and yeah. trying to make impacts. And obviously, I'm not doing the thing so I can have a story to put on my resume. I think like one of the things I was very like lucky to have is that I, I'm, ve I'm very interested in mechanical engineering and working in defense just kind mm -hmm. of on my own, regardless of any sort of you know tangible benefits that it may be bring me personally. But I was aware like, and when I would reflect on these things before interviews, for for example, when I a lot of the time when I do my big interview prep, it's not that I'm 
really looking at equations or thinking or trying to read textbooks or, or reviewing specific technical matters. I'm more kind of marshalling all the experiences I've had, both technical and non-technical, and really considering what image I'm trying to put forth into this interview or into the world and how each of these stories interact with each other, but also how they'll likely interact in the conversation that's coming up. I think that's more kind of what I'm doing. So am I, am I physically journaling everything down? No, but I'm definitely considering and, and trying to think deeply and be self-reflective about my past experiences and marshalling those in preparation for a future interview. Um, so now someone is in the internship, they've landed a great internship. How do they get the most out of that opportunity? Yeah, I think it's, it follows the same thread that we've been talking about through this conversation already. Obviously, it takes on a different flavor, and and I think that now you you've gotten the opportunity, you have the dream internship, but understand that there's still possibility for separation. And I think for people who really, I think getting a converting offer is obviously like the base goal for most people. It's it's I do my internship in my third year. Hopefully, that turns into a a full time offer after I graduate college, or maybe it's my second year, and then I'll get a third after my second year, and I'll get a third year internship, and then that'll convert as well. Um, but I, I would encourage people to consider how what you do in that internship has the possibility of, even though you are still an intern, has the possibility of, of making waves down the line. And I, I speak from personal experience knowing this, but I, I think that it becomes again of, okay, what are the stories that I'm getting out of this? Um, what are the specific technical skills that I'm developing, obviously, but what is the way I'm making an impact? And I think if you look at it from that lens, it makes your day-to-day or or what the pragmatic implications of how you should be expressing yourself much more clear, i.e. you should be looking for opportunities to expand outside of just your specific scope of work. If nothing else, to be able to say that, hey, I looked at opportunities outside of my exact scope of work, which is what most employers will want or expect their employees to do, especially at higher and higher levels where scopes of work maybe become slightly more malleable. I think the second thing is, not just being an intern, like just one of the hundreds of interns. I know I worked at Northrop Grumman this past summer. I think we had maybe close to a thousand, maybe not a thousand interns, several hundred interns just at my site, um, just at Space Park, and thousands of interns across the company, let alone the fact that the company is 100,000 people. Trying to stand out in that crowd becomes a big deal. And that doesn't mean you're the most aggressive person or just constantly nagging people, but it does mean always having an eye towards trying to be as strategic as possible, trying to make your own luck. I, one thing I constantly tell people just in almost every aspect of my life is I'm a big believer in, in making your own luck. That means developing opportunities for yourself and then always being ready to jump on those opportunities when those arise. And I think that can only be done uh, through a couple of things. First is making sure that you're explicating what your goals are and what your values are to other people. Like nobody can help you unless they know who you are and what you specifically want. I think the second thing is is asking questions and having the humility, but also the courage to ask questions and try to learn about these sorts of things. You're only going to be able to find opportunities if you know they exist, right? So it's kind of two sides of the coin where people need to know you to connect you, but you also need to know other people and your surrounding situation in order to go out and find things. And then a third, like, being willing to take a jump. I, I know from my this past internship, I had the opportunity to do something, uh, to develop some basically verification activities for something that I'm doing that's a fair amount, a fair bit above the general scope of work of what an intern is. It's I'd have to present every week um, to a team. I'd have to be leading a specific effort. Uh, granted, it's a small effort, but I'd still have like basically my name was going to be attached to it. So if I made a mistake right. or if I wasn't up to snuff Monday morning when I was trying to present, like it would be me who was being critiqued. And I think always being willing to put yourself out there and be willing to f- take some criticism. Like I got cr- criticized in these meetings. I had to answer tough mm-hmm. questions about why something was done in a specific way. I had to be able to defend myself. And uh, while that was not always the most pleasant experience, I'm glad I undertook it and more importantly, continued to undertake it because that'll like, I've seen how that trickles down or, or maybe helps push me forward and propel me forward as I'm going into my first thing. And again, to not to bring it back to the beginning of the conversation, but me working on all these skills early on in my college career, like I'm a mechanical engineer, but I was the debate team captain at UCLA. I did debate all four years of, of college. Um, 
I took a lot of social responsibility in, in my engineering, professional engineering fraternity that I was in and really tried to make it a point to be constantly honing these sorts of social skills, these soft skills, um, mm -hmm. because it makes doing technical things a lot easier because you're more comfortable in well, I th even social environments that arise inside of uh, like and full on engineering technical companies. Right, right. Absolutely. And also be that social side and that that communication side is a great skill because you're communicating. You have to communicate with non-technical people, right? When you're presenting sometimes, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I wouldn't say I was actually communicating with non-technical people all that much. I was communicating mostly te with technical people. But I think that even when you're just in a group of technical people, it being able to communicate well still really matters. It still holds right. a lot of value. Uh, maybe not as traditionally as generally thought, but uh, when, when we say, oh, we're in a room full of technical people, sure, we might have some shared experiences, but a lot of time technical interests diverge heavily. So while you may have five very talented subject matter experts or five very talented engineers in front of you, it's unlikely that their understanding of what's going on is all at the same level. So being able to recognize that, identify uh what things need to be emphasized or what things can be passed over. I think this is all sort of communication skill that needs to be honed and maybe not readily mm -hmm. apparent if you haven't worked on those skills through college or, or, or through life. And that empathy part too, understanding what they would need to know and what they need clarification on, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I, I think empathy is oftentimes connected directly with sympathy. And I think that's a, a much like a, a different conversation perhaps for a different day. But I, I think this is a great example of just empathy working on its own, which is empathy is just ultimately understanding where a person is coming from. And then I think the operationalized side of that is then what do you do next using that information to move forward? And I think this is a perfect example of that. Right. So I like your recommendations, making your own luck. That's a big one. So that preparation is a big part. The other is making sure that your superiors know what you are looking for. And right. that's the same in any kind of situation where you're networking for another job, whether it's within your company or you're outside of your company, it really helps others advocate for you if they understand your goals. That doesn't mean that this is going to go your way or you're going to get any of the things that right. you initially wanted. And it also means when you're approaching that, like you have to, you know, I was... When I was talking to my my bosses about what I'm interested in, I'm I'm acutely aware of of where I sit on the the tonal pole, right? They don't need to help me with anything. It's only from the goodness of their own hearts, or if they see some uh, pragmatic reason that they can justify for themselves about why they would want to help me. So I, I think being able to approach conversations with humility, but also the self confidence that hey, I have just enough worth to at least say what I would like to do, but then also being mm. understanding when that doesn't always work out. I know I've expressed yeah. that I've wanted to, to work on several things at Northrop Grumman and, and at other companies and, and other labs. It hasn't always worked out, but I've always been glad to have put that out there because sometimes I'll get a hit and then I can just move forward with the things that work out and don't work out and just be accepting of that sort of situation. Right. So what do you think remote work, I want to kind of move toward this topic of remote work. Uh, one of my colleagues, Sarah Johnston, talked about this Gen Z is, is kind of a latchkey workforce. And that kind of harkens back to Gen X being uh, latchkey kids, right? Where you're coming in and you don't have this, this structure because of the remote work that you would have normally, like we all experienced this back in our twenties, when we were starting to work in companies, we walked into a, we, we knew what was expected. We knew how to manage our time. We learned all these things. We, we built really solid relationships. And I think remote work has a, has had an impact, uh, a challenging impact on interns to, to say the least. What Definitely. are your thoughts on that? I, I think it has. I'm, and you know my my internship after my third year was was a difficult internship for me because you know I espouse a lot of these things about taking initiative and and, and making your own luck. I and I, I'm 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 fine saying that like I I did not do enough of those things, but I also think that there wasn't a huge amount of infrastructure or setup there for me to 
do those, even if I had been able to do those things at a higher level, do those things well either. So it was, it was kind of a combination of both. But yeah, my internship was fully remote. Um, it was on a very large team. And my manager, my direct manager was managing like 20 or 30 people. So not a lot of bandwidth, especially for an intern who was only going to be there for 10 or 12 weeks and never, never saw in person. And, and I know the feeling and for whatever reasons, this feeling occurred, you know, a, a different discussion, but I felt like very much I was in an icebox. I talked to two people, basically my entire internship for 10 weeks um, about things they also did not have a lot of time. They were very overloaded. It was very difficult to get FaceTime. And I I had always had the feeling going through this that this probably would have been easier if I was on site because I would be sitting right next to them. So sure, maybe they don't have time to schedule in a 30-minute meeting for me or they're rushing around. But if I have to just lean over and ask you know, a five-minute question or, hey, what is this thing supposed to do? And they can give me an answer and then I can go. I don't have to wait mm -hmm. for them to check their IMs or wait for them to check an email or wait for one of our scheduled meetings. I always felt like things would have gone a lot more smoothly and expanding that out more generally. I think that it's very tough. And I've heard this from other friends as well who started full-time offers uh, online to develop any sort of camaraderie, but also then the pragmatic benefits of developing that camaraderie from your older coworkers, from just from your peers, from the people who've been around the block a couple of times, you lose that sort of mentorship, you use a lot of that like frictional contact that oftentimes allows you to like grow as a person and grow as an employee and begin to better understand kind of where you sit in the company, but also best practices that maybe aren't always explicated in your like opening day manual. Mm hmm. So is there a way to overcome some companies are 100% in person, some are hybrid, some are 100% remote now? Yeah. What would be your advice, you know, after you've gone through this experience where there was a lot of separation? Do you have advice for interns on how to navigate that moving forward because there could be situations like that? So Personally, and but I do think that this is reflected a bit, like a bit more broadly, and especially for my own goals and and careers. Like we've talked a lot about being more dynamic player, being able to take initiative. If you have the opportunity to go in every day, go in every day, even if it's a little more inconvenient than just rolling out of bed. Uh, especially over an internship, you know, you've got ten weeks uh, to make a lasting impression. There's again, there's a lot of other interns. There's a lot of other demands on everybody's uh, time that you're probably working with, and they're every bit of mentorship that they give you, they probably don't need to explicitly give you. So trying to maximize all those things, going in person as much as possible, um, again, even at the risk of inconveniencing yourself a little bit, is mm -hmm. I think very, very important. Again, for all these sort of frictional reasons for understanding best practices, getting an idea of the culture, I think learning about yourself too, about how you uh, interact with people around the workforce. I think, you know, going into things at Northrop, I've never been in an environment where I was just working around other people for eight, nine hours, 10 hours a day, every day in and day out. I think it's that, I think that is a skill like staying on task, especially staying on task in front of your boss. And my boss sat right behind me and he could see my screen all the time. All these things, like <laughs> not, not that I had a problem, right? But I, but I think these sorts of things are important skills to develop. Um, and then I think on the flip side of that, it's being able to show that you're an in, per in person. I think there's a distinctly different feel. And I, I've actually talked to a lot of my mentors about this of, if you're a boss, like I would get into the office before my boss every single day. Now I did that more because I was an early riser and I was going to the gym and I wanted to be out a little earlier. But I think that there is a dis the feel of, hey, like every time my boss came in, he saw that I was working, like I had already had my everything set up. I had already gotten my coffee and I had my mm -hmm. setup going and I was already making progress on the day. I was getting in early and prepping for the meetings. Now that could have still happened if I was online. Clearly, it probably would have still happened. But I think there's a different visceral feel and a visceral image that you're giving to everybody working mm -hmm. around you. Like, hey, this guy was here, stayed early or stayed late when necessary. He was on task all the time. There's no ambiguity about what he's like. There's no three-hour gap where he's just, you know, he's online, but we don't actually know where he's doing, even if we could eventually figure it out. It's always very clear that you're on task, what you're working on. Um, and I think presenting that image is, is very, very important. Yeah, I think that visibility uh, is is key on a number of levels. And another way I think that you made yourself visible is I, I think when you would finish a project and you had the extra time, you were doing a lot of networking, weren't you? Weren't you going to lunch with people? And 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I made it a point, and this was something that was informed by my. So we're, we're talking about two different internships here. The, the first one was a right. fully remote internship, and then I had to do an extra quarter after my fourth year because I was finishing up. I did a combined degree program, my BS and MS, at the same time at UCLA for mechanical engineering. So I needed an extra quarter to finish up my master's degree. So after my fourth year, I had another internship, which I'm actually very grateful I got to have, even if uh, having to stay in school an extra quarter was maybe like a, a little less fun. Being able to do that extra internship, I think, was super helpful. Um, f- at this at this in-person Northrop internship in my, after my fourth year, I made it a really big point because I did not have a great experience after my third year to meet as many people as I could and just talk to as many people. Even if it was a 30-minute conversation at lunch, even if it was a 15-minute conversation, uh, like a phone call, um, just I, I, I met I felt comf- confident that I had met and talked to almost everybody on my team. I had also met and talked to my boss, my boss's boss, and my boss's boss's boss. Yeah, so like three <laughs> levels above me, and then in in the on the functional side as well, which was like basically just kind of uh, like, there's two level like two directions of management inside of Northrop for each employee. It, it, the exact breakdown is not clear, but or is not that important. But basically, I had, I, had two, I had two chains of commands for two different things. Also on that side, understanding that side, like both sides of the management chain as well. Um, so yeah, that involved like t- asking, hey, could I go out to lunch? And these are the easy ones, like my boss, my boss's boss, etc. But also asking them, hey, you know, I'm interested in this sort of thing. Could you connect me with someone? I think it takes the load off the person that I'm talking to of, oh, I don't need to get lunch with this guy every single Wednesday because he's got this laundry <laughs> yeah. list of questions you ask. You also get different experiences um, and, you, and you get people at different stages in their career or with different technical focuses, which obviously in an engineering company is important um, and different programmatic experience. So being able to get to do that as well of, hey, like I, I kind of made it a goal for me, like at least once a week, if not more often than that, that I was either taking someone out to lunch or I was having a phone call with someone, basically just getting an experience that wasn't directly on my team and wasn't specifically technical. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that adds yeah, up. Yeah, right? I love one, that. Once a week, you know, 30 minutes out of my week of a 40-hour week, um, even if I meant I had to stay late or, or something like that, you know, actually, again, that little inconvenience or that little extra time I had to spend at work to to accomplish those things, over the that's 10 different conversations that's 10 different potential mentors that's 10 different experiences mm-hmm. or perspectives that I was able to gain that I think maybe uh, any intern who wasn't able to do that just over 10 weeks I, I and I was much better able to situate myself inside of Northrop as a company I mean Northrop's 100,000 people it's got more geographic locations than you can count dozens and dozens of dozens of projects it's really hard to get any sort of view of where you want to be going in that company besides what is just the obvious path of just converting onto your team uh, as an intern because you're you're so low to the ground. So getting popping your head up, talking to people who are far above you, or or at least trying to initiate those conversations, I think uh, it's it's never ever hurt me, and it's always helped me. I also think if you are meeting with people outside of your department or outside of your business unit, you're really breaking down those silos, and you're understanding the impact. So when you're thinking of a strategy down the road, you're going to be able to incorporate what these other business units that are related to you, how they would be impact or impacted or how they right. could help, right? Uh, which I, I just think is wonderful. I, I think may, maybe in the far future, I think currently and and probably in the next couple of years, just in my role and, and for most people's role, again, as, and especially in defense, because... The, the silos in defense obviously exist for a reason. There's a lot of compartmentalization that happens inside gotcha. both public and private defense industry. Right now I'm working private, but it also happens in the public, right? Just for classification mm-hmm. reasons prior um, and prioritization and, and whatnot. What I will say, though, is that, well, maybe that information will be super helpful when I'm, when I'm a manager of, of multiple different projects or have my hand in a lot of different projects. That might be five years down the line. What I think it will help me now is, again, kind of from a very personal lens of maybe when I'm choosing my next project and if I because I want to be that manager, you know, in five to 10 years, that's that's dealing with a lot of different things or, or, or a director that's that's seeing things from a much higher level to get to that position. You need a fair amount of strategy. You need to know which projects you want to be working on. You need to know which roles are high visibility roles. Um what your resume should look like inside the company. What are you developing? What are 
who are people that you should be looking up to and trying to emulate? What are good performance metrics? Do you need to do a tour in this sector specifically? Do you need this sort of technical competency? You're only really going to learn that, I think, from people who have been there and done that and who are themselves uh, making a name for themselves like, or, or maybe in the positions that you want to be. And I, I think from a connections lens, it, it's very much kind of an exponential growth thing where the first couple things, you're not going to know anything. You're not even going to know the correct questions to ask. But eventually, you're going to know the correct questions to ask just from talking to these people. Then mm-hmm. once you get to know these correct questions to ask, you get to really start understanding the space. And then you get to and then people are going to want to connect you more and more and more because you're enthusiastic. But it seems like maybe these conversations are not just a one-way exchange of an information, but rather a dialogue about the current state of you know whatever you're talking about, technical, a technical matter, what where a project's going, um, what is a good position to take, are there good ideas that are happening in this sector that could be transferred over. I think all of these things, while maybe not directly benefiting the company, at least for a while, are extremely helpful to you and developing your network. Yeah. So Zach, how can companies best leverage high-performing interns and then entice them back if they want them to come back for for full-time work? Yeah, I think this is a really tough question. I've actually been thinking about this. I I knew some of these questions ahead of time. I will admit (laughs) to the audience. Uh, I've been thinking about this a lot and and I I recognize that there, there are limitations. And so to preface all of like the the conversation that we're going to have on this topic, I recognize that there are limitations and restraints and requirements that I can't see that happen in these big companies. Again, Northrop's 100,000 people, like in defense, especially the big four primes, Lockheed, Boeing, Northrop, and Raytheon are all tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, just massive companies. Um, So there are dynamics that I don't understand. What I will say, though, is universally, I've heard from everybody who works in defense especially, but in tech as well, retaining and like retaining and keeping top talent happy is brutal like there is my generation especially holds almost no loyalty to any company for any reason i've almost never seen this i think you can break it down the reasons why people would stay at a company long term in my generation and i'm sure this is true across generations but i but i think it's these are more malleable categories are money obviously mission which is can you get people on board with what you're doing and then also path forward so at least one of these things need to be required like maintained above anybody else above any other competitive uh company uh and ideally two if not all three of these things so i can give you examples right so money clearly just salary benefits bonuses at the end of the year etc etc i think mission's a trickier one mission is basically like what are you trying to accomplish or what is this company trying to accomplish and then i also think personal mission of what am i contributing to help this company accomplish this thing because it's great if the company is doing great things but if i feel like me as an individual contributor or actor is not really advancing that mission in any serious way i'm not sure why i would stick around even if it's great i think it's also compounded by the fact that almost no companies have a mission that is extremely distinct from any other missions. For example, Lockheed's mission doesn't look a whole lot different than Northrop's mission. Now, I think there's nuances there, and those nuances intrigue me, but definitely from the surface, most companies are competing in a competitive, are, are in a competitive business environment. So your ability to maintain a primacy on mission can sometimes be very difficult, especially over the long term. And then I th- think the third thing is path forward. And this is, again, maybe not, it's, it's not as clear and obvious as money but i i think people in general especially for really high performers whose goal is maybe not the next you know big pay bump or the next big promotion but the fourth or fifth promotion down the line that being able to explicate first identifying but then explicating how you can get to those that director position early you know in your in your early 30s at Northrop or that VP position by the time you're 40, what do those benefits look like? What are the paths towards those roles? Or more importantly, how can you start setting yourself up to stay on or be on that path? I think are important things to explicate to, uh, to especially top performers who probably have maybe loftier aims than the average intern or average new hire. Mm-hmm. I think that mission part, sometimes people forget about, right? It's the salary and the and the path forward i think are more obvious to people but the mission yes do i fit this mission yeah. and 
the, the company has to think, does this person fit this mission as well? And they're going to be able to identify that. And just to, like, to use a personal example, and this is, I, I had a conversation with a mentor who, and, and she's doing very well for herself inside of Northrop. Um, and she's, we had a good conversation about Northrop's positioning in, I, I work in the space sector of Northrop, so we're working on satellites. And, and we had a good conversation about how Northrop is moving forward. And because Northrop is not number one in space right now. Actually, Lockheed is, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Boeing is, is a very close competitor as well. So Northrop doesn't, is not the top dog. But I, I think that, and when it comes to mission, it can be something like this. It gives, from what I've seen from the VPs and the leaders of the business units and, and what the projects they're trying to go after, it imbues it with more of a purpose, and a sp- or maybe not more of a purpose, but a purpose that I know I can get on board of kind of being that underdog, of trying to innovate past the current meta and the, past the current competition to steal back that top spot in you know five to 10 years is, is mm-hmm. really what we're looking for. I think that sort of thing and and laying out like not just what the mission is, but but why it's a great time to be on board with this specific mission. Again, using kind of like the buzzwords of just like, you know, protecting America, patriotism. Those are important things, but those are important things at every defense company. Going deeper mm-hmm. than that and explicating why specifically your company is the one that's doing this the best or is going to be in the best position, why you want to get on this ground floor, uh, I think are all important things. So one one more thing that I wanted to touch on is there is um, in some companies there's a divide between Gen Z and the more senior people, right? And you know whatever the reasons are, uh, we'll get past that. But what are some ways that you think Gen Z and this more senior people can kind of cross pollinate ideas and help each other grow? I think, I think this is easier for me to answer from the Gen Z perspective. Obviously, I, mm-hmm. I think if if as Gen Z, like what I would like to see my generation doing more is a lot of the sort of things that I think we've already discussed, which is going out, talking to people above you, trying to get an idea of the space around you, uh, learning best practices that are maybe not. The, the most codified things, but just that people have figured out over decades of experience. There's all, you know, there's on a team, there's probably 40, 50, you know, a, a team of six people, there might be 80 years of experience doing the thing that you're trying to work towards doing or, or are currently doing. Um, and, and that's why I think there's such a benefit of going to the office or just developing strong, close relationships with as many people as possible. Not, you don't need to be everybody's best friend, but really, again, empathizing and understanding who these people are, where they're coming from, what experiences they have, what have they figured out that you don't have to now spend the next 20 years figuring out. They can just give you the details immediately. I'd love to see more of that sort of initiative, definitely for myself, and I'm always working on these sorts of things, but just everybody around me. So I'd love to see more of that sort of initiative. And I'm sure that this is the case from every like everybody or for every generation, that there needs to be more initiative to learn from the older generation to find the people that are willing to define the space around you. And so you can start asking those right questions and really slotting yourself in. I think from the other side, I I think that from, again, and I I fully recognize that there are things I'm not seeing and dynamics that I'm not seeing, but I I think this general, like my generation is fundamentally just, there's not corporate loyalty. And I say this someone who... I say this as someone who's very on board with Northrop's mission and find myself in a very advantageous position inside of Northrop Grumman and can see myself working there for a very long time. But I think that only exists insofar as Northrop is providing as much for me as I feel like I'm giving them, right? That I see a path to the top. Obviously, that salary and compensation is correct, that their mission stays focused and on brand. And I feel like the things that we are doing are actually... Uh, with that mission, and that mission maybe evolves over time as as things change. I think my generation is a lot faster, and with that, faster from an evol- like evolving sort of standpoint about how ideas evolve. And what that means is, if one of those three things falls out of balance, or multiple of those things fall out of balance, you're not going to be able to guarantee people are going to stick around. For example, I have friends who are 24 and on their third job. And each time they've gotten paid more money, they've gotten more responsibility, they've ended up in a better position. And I think that everybody, especially in the high tech space, looks around and knows at least one or two or three people who are 24, 25 on their third job. And every time they jump, they're landing on their feet. 
So the obvious question becomes, well, why am I not doing that? Like, there's no reason that I could not be that person because everybody is realizing that it's a, it's a buyer, it's a seller's market here. Like my, Mm -hmm. my time and skills are, are valuable and needed. And even with the massive layoffs in, in Facebook, for example, right? Like massive layoffs across the tech sector. I know multiple people have gotten caught up in them. Not a single person is worried about finding a new job and several have already found new jobs like that and are getting paid maybe more than what they were making at at Facebook. It's it's really incredible to see. And and I think all this breeds a sort of thing of, hey, I don't need to take BS from my company. Like Mm -hmm. if, if BS gets to a certain point, there's not a whole reason for us to stay. And, and I think for especially the top band of people, uh, for really high performers who are 22 to 26, especially with people without families or or even significant others, there's a whole lot of thing of like, my skills will be valued. I know I'll take a 25, 30% pay increase and potentially a, a big promotion if I switch companies, just moving laterally, but more often moving diagonally uh, upwards. I don't need to stay here unless I'm really like the company is is helping me and is understanding me and the company is having empathy for me just as I am trying to work and and contribute to the company. This is an excellent perspective, Zach. Um, I think I talk to a lot of people uh, my age about this topic, but to actually hear it from somebody who's 22 and, you know, has this, this perspective and you have all of these friends who also have that perspective, I think, is a really, really, really helpful. And also the fact, you know, there are a lot of people out there who are my age who are concerned about the tech, all of the layoffs right now. Um, but to hear you say, well, my friends are, yep, they know they're going to land on their feet. That's a very positive note to end on. Honestly, at 37 or 40, that's almost inconceivable to me and any of my friends that you'd only work at two companies. It's almost mm-hmm. inconceivable. And obviously it will happen. I could see my again, I could see myself being at Northrop for a very long time, but I do think I'm a relatively special case. And already what I've seen with 22, 23, 24-year-old engineers is that our generation, there's gonna be the norm is now it's faster. It's if you're at a company five years, like that's a long haul decision, yeah, not yeah. a 15-year career, right? It's five years. Right. And more often, it's two to three years. So. Yeah. Um, one more thing I just wanted to to ask as we're signing off here. Do you have one nugget of advice for interns that you haven't touched yeah. on already? I think that it's going to be so cliche, but just like work harder than everybody else. Demonstrate that you're willing to work harder. Be more focused. Be more on task be more willing to subordinate your own ego or get past your own fears of doing something that could ultimately uh, help your career. I think this goes to most things in life. But if we're just talking about career, you'd be surprised. I went to the top public school in the nation and I I worked with a lot of brilliant people, people who I would consider a lot more technically competent or just smarter than myself. But one thing that always gave me confidence in these situations is that I'm willing I, I know my own capacity to work as hard as possible for something that I can get. And that will oftentimes, assuming a base level of competency in whatever you're doing, will pay dividends in the future. Um, mm-hmm. It's uncomfortable. Like again, like a- across college, I've done a lot, I've had to work and, and miss parties and miss social functions and have sacrificed sleep and all of these things because I was in pursuit of an end goal that I find a lot of value in. And I, I can say, I think with a fair amount of humility and truth that I will often was the hardest worker in the room. And now I'm reaping the rewards of that. That's not to say that I'm better because I did that. I'm not like, I was not intrinsically better when I first started college than I think most like anybody at UCLA, but I think mm-hmm. that I was able to take as many opportunities and turn those into real tangible benefits that are now just beginning to really pay dividends like and and hopefully continue to do it moving forward. I think working hard, being a little uncomfortable for a little while in pursuit of a longer goal, that sort of delaying of gratification is huge. And again, like what we talk about, like what are the things that are going to set you apart? I think that sort of attitude it, it is well liked and it is oftentimes very well received. I also want to just add on to that is that you've put yourself out there. And I think that risk taking in a good way um, mm-hmm. is so important because 
I remember being 22 and thinking, oh, I need to know everything. And you don't, right? And you don't have to know everything when you're 58. And so I I think that we put too much pressure on ourselves. I, I wish that I could talk to my younger self and say, you know what? I don't have to have all the answers. I'm going to take a risk. I might, I might fail. I don't like to say I fail. My experiment fails. Like, so you say, um, I'm going to try this. And if my mission is aligned, I have a good reason to do this. If it doesn't work out, it's okay. Because then it's a learning experience. And I wish more young people considered that and and were able to just you know just put yourself out there right i mean yeah, i feel it, like that's it, something that's a theme in your conversation here and i think that is hard work i mean i think it is right. it is scary it, even if it's not hard work in the traditional sense of oh i'm spending 20 hours on this just putting yourself out there for 5 minutes 2 minutes 30 seconds i think that can be oftentimes way harder than than doing something maybe a little more trivial or a more more comfortable thing for 20 hours um, mm-hmm. because that's, that's where that fear is. I, I know, you know, I know you want to wrap this up and everything, but when I first started debate in, in my freshman year, I didn't have to do it. There, like, there's not a whole lot of engineers are do debate at all, let alone try to take leadership positions or try to find competitive success. And when I first started debate, it was tough. It was, it was scary. I, I consider myself a fairly outgoing person just before debate, you know, in high school and, and at the beginning of college, it was tough. It was scary. I was getting demolished every single week. <laughs> I was having to learn a lot. I was with people who studied this. So I was already at like this kind of disadvantage, uh, or people who study politics, who study communication. Um, and, and that's what they want to do. And here I'm coming with like, well, you can't exactly apply Newton's second law <laughs> to you know you know whatever <laughs> yeah. politics we were talking about that day i think to me i i still view that as part of like what i would consider hard work and and i and i tell friends this as well like your hard work does not look the same as my hard work and it, it probably won't because the things that are difficult for you to get over or the, the hurdles that you need to overcome need to need to be different but what will always be the same is pushing hard across those boundaries so just because something is easy for me and it's hard for you doesn't mean that it's bad because there's definitely something that's easy for you that is hard for me but what is the commonality is the willingness to push past that sort of obstacle that first kind of friction that maybe is uncomfortable putting yourselves in those situations and the more you do it the more the easier it becomes I, i think just in life i know that i'm better at it at 22 than i'm 18 and hopefully by the time i'm 26 i'm better than i am and now and and just going forward as well. Absolutely. Zachary, thank you so much for joining me. This was a really great conversation. You and I've talked about this before, but there were some new tidbits for me uh, that I found really, really valuable. So thank you so much for spending the time with me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of Career Cohort. I'm Emily Wong. You can find all of my podcasts and blog posts at wordsofdistinction.net. And if you'd like to chat about how I can help you define the next step in your career, head over to the same website and book a time on my calendar for a free consultation to discuss how I can help you achieve your goals. Please be sure to share, subscribe, rate, and review so we can continue to bring you great content.